Hello everyone, and thanks for joining me for this second installment in this series exploring the American Civil War in the Shoals and the Tennessee Valley. I'm your host, Jordan Collier. In this episode, we will discuss the events which led to the secession crisis during the winter of 1860 and 61. Originally, I intended to also discuss in this episode the Alabama Secession Convention, and then to also explain the context here in the Shoals during those events. However, to properly explain the lead-up to the Secession Crisis, I have decided to split these topics into two separate episodes. This will allow me to provide more detailed information, so we have a much clearer understanding of why secession took place. So, at this time, we will talk only about the events and historical context that led to secession. By necessity, this must still be a rather shallow overview, because offering an exhaustive analysis of 70 or 80 years worth of events could really easily be a series in and of itself. Furthermore, the subject is rather beyond the scope of focus for this series, so I have tried to keep it as brief as possible. I do, however, want to provide enough background knowledge to make you reasonably well-versed on the subject so as to understand why secession occurred, what brought it about. I must take a moment here to credit David Blight of Yale University and his lecture series for the information I will present on this subject. It's really a condensed summary of the first 10 lectures of his course on the Civil War and Reconstruction. And I encourage you, if you're interested in the topics presented here and you want a more in-depth exploration of these events, uh, check out his course on YouTube. And even though these events take place outside of the Shoals, the very act of secession, without a doubt, directly impacted life in the Shoals and the Tennessee Valley. So therefore, in order to understand what took place here and, and why it took place at all, we will need to have a good grasp of the political and historical events which lead to two divergent competing socioeconomic systems, North and South, the defense of which led the adherents of the Southern system to decide to secede from the Union in 1860 and 61. So how do we get to the secession crisis? What were those events that led Southern elected officials to collectively de to decide to declare themselves free from the United States? It has been called the result of a failure to compromise. But compromise about what? Some have also said it was to defend states' rights, but states' rights regarding what? In a word, slavery. Specifically, regarding the expansion of slavery into the Western territories. But how and why did this issue lead to the disintegration of the Union and the outbreak of civil war? Slavery had been legal in British colonial America in all 13 colonies, and had been present for virtually the entire history of British colonization of the Americas. Enslaved Africans were first recorded sold in Jamestown, Virginia in August of 1619. But by the time of the American Revolution, it was dying out as an institution in the North. The Northwest Ordinance of 1787, which organized the territory that would become the states of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota, expressly forbade the practice of slavery in the territory. 
1805, slavery was outlawed in all northern states, meaning north of the Ohio River and north of Mason and Dixon's line separating Maryland and Pennsylvania. It was also an institution on the decline in much of the South. Then, the invention and implementation of the cotton gin around the turn of the 19th century revolutionized cotton production in the Deep South. While the budding Industrial Revolution saw an increase in the demand for cotton abroad, cotton production and profits soared, as did the South's reinvigorated dependence on slavery in tandem. Already by 1825, the South was the world's largest cotton producer. As a result of these developments, the South as a region became increasingly distinct from the rest of the nation, with a burgeoning planter class heavily invested in sustaining the practice of racially heritable human bondage known as chattel slavery. And although participation in the international slave trade was banned in the United States by 1808, the domestic population replenished itself naturally, which is a feature that makes slavery in America unique among the other historical New World slave societies. And the domestic slave trade flourished. Importing slaves from Africa may have been banned, but buying and selling them within the slave states was still perfectly legal. Meanwhile, by the 1820s and 30s, the so-called market revolution was transforming life in the North. The advent of railroads, steamboats, and canals brought ever-expanding access to markets and long-distance commerce. A booming immigrant population that flooded the northern coastal cities provided the human capital that made those cities into the powerhouse of a blossoming industrial revolution. Over 5 million immigrants arrived to the United States in the three decades between 1830 and 1860, mostly from Western Europe. Thousands of patents were issued, mostly to Northerners, for a host of innovations. There was a general faith in progress. It was an era of optimism. Farmers in the North began to shift from the 18th century paradigm of subsistence agriculture to specializing in cash crops that could be brought to market markets that provided access to all the myriad of goods now offered by the market revolution. Alexis de Tocqueville, in his Democracy in America, writing in the 1830s, famously observed the widening gap between the two labor systems by contrasting the free enterprising industrial spirit of Ohio with the planter-dominated slave society of Kentucky across the Ohio River to the south. Quote, the scene changes so suddenly, he said, you think yourself on the other side of the world. The rapidly changing times were inspiring, even frightening, and created with them a changing mentality about fundamental concepts such as labor, capital, and individual rights. It is worth mentioning that here in the Tennessee Valley and in North Alabama during this era, uh, the area was a cradle of infant industry. One of, these, one of the oldest railroads in the southern United States was built in Tuscumbia in 1830 and extended to De Decatur by 1835 to circumvent the Muscle Shoals. It will eventually be absorbed into the Memphis and Charleston Railroad, which we will see in future episodes, is enormously significant during the war to come. 
Owing to the abundant supply of running water, there were mills of many kinds that had developed by the 1830s. There were also iron mines and a foundry just across the Tennessee border in Wayne County established in this period. Sawmills, grist mills, textile mills, a gun factory, and a wagon works existed in Lauderdale County all by the time of the outbreak of war in 1861. The region of the Tennessee Valley does not match the soil or the topographical profile that is ideal for large-scale plantation agriculture as seen elsewhere in the Deep South. There were indeed plantations, but the economy here in the Tennessee Valley was surprisingly diversified. Enslaved people were also hired out by their masters to work in the factories and mills. The majority of people, however, practiced agriculture on small family farms. And this was true both north and south across the nation. We'll talk more about the sociological distinctness of the Tennessee Valley region in a moment uh, in the next episode whenever we discuss the controversy surrounding the secession of Alabama. Despite their increasing divergence, both north and south shared in several key commonalities. For one, the inheritance of the American Revolution, with its emphasis on personal liberty. The widespread adherence to Protestant Christianity. A fervent adherence to capitalism, and critically, what David Blight calls a, quote, deep and abiding American nationalism. And a belief in the destiny of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant America to expand into the seemingly boundless land of the American West, a philosophy we now popularly refer to as Manifest Destiny. Both North and South participated in this ever-widening expansion into the West. The white settlement of North Alabama itself in the second decade of the 19th century was an outgrowth of this Western impulse. It is worth noting that at the turn of the 19th century, the West in America meant merely West of the Appalachians. In the Southern mindset, the push westward offered new land rife with speculators looking to make fortunes, which investors could then cultivate with lucrative cash crops, especially cotton, with enslaved African labor. Settlers from Kentucky, Virginia, North Carolina, and Tennessee flooded North Alabama in the late 18-teens and 20s, bringing their families and quite often their slaves. As part of this westward impulse, the nation acquired the Louisiana Purchase from France in 1803. This purchase corresponds roughly to the area west of the Mississippi River, east of the Rockies, and north of Texas to the border with British Canada, what we would today know as the Great Plains. It's 828,000 square miles, or 530 million acres. It nearly doubled the size of the country. There was abundant new land to be divided into territories and settled by Americans thirsty for the economic potential of new land. The seeds of disintegration began to be sown when, early in 1819, Missouri was ready to be admitted as a state. At this time, there were an equal number of slave states and free states. There was an uproar in Congress about the admission of Missouri as a free state because it would upset the symmetry, the balance of power in the Senate. 
Southerners worried that free states would excise their power unfairly to restrict what Southerners viewed as their constitutional right to property, slave property. Northerners worried that Southern control would provide a disadvantage to free labor and the so-called common man, whose labor would be devaluated in competition with an oligarchical slave labor system. The compromise was that Missouri would be admitted as a slave state, but Maine, previously part of Massachusetts, would balance the number by joining the Union as a free state. In future, slavery would be prohibited in the states to form from territories north of a line along Missouri's southern border, 36 degrees 30 minutes north. It sounds simple enough. Just draw a line. The northern politicians, averse to slavery out of a moral, economic, or even a racist impulse, or perhaps a combination of all of those impulses, easily conceded that they had no authority, as per the Fifth Amendment, to remove slavery from anywhere where it already existed. They, however, could exercise Congress's constitutional authority to admit new states to cordon off the extent of slavery, and, critically, to prevent its expansion into the western frontier, which would remain thus safe for free labor. The so-called Freedom Party evolved by the mid-1830s to expressly oppose the expansion of slavery. In a decade or so, they would evolve into what were known as the Free Soilers. They even ran a candidate for president in 1844 and named James Burney, who was actually a prominent citizen of Huntsville, Alabama, a state congressman who came to view slavery as morally wrong. He even helped to draft a bill that would have guaranteed slaves the right to a trial by jury, which could not contain their master, prosecutorial witnesses, or the families of either the master or witnesses. He eventually went on to settle in Michigan, apparently, so that his children would not have to grow up in a slave society. He wrote abundant letters to slaveholders, adamantly urging them to free their slaves as he had done. His example is atypical, but it does show that, even in the South, slavery was not universally regarded as an unquestionable good. Some prominent Southerners, even though they may have had serious misgivings about the morality of the practice, could scarcely envision a viable alternative. However, as sectional opposition to the expansion of slavery grew in the North, Southern political leaders began to offer increasingly emphatic defenses of slavery as a socioeconomic system for a host of diverse reasons. For example, they offered biblical and sociological defenses. They spoke of a certain natural order where some men are born to rule and others to be ruled. They even directly refuted Thomas Jefferson's maxim in the Declaration of Independence vis-a-vis -vis, all men are created equal. As in Alexander Stevens' famous so-called cornerstone speech to the Virginia Secession Convention, in which he declared that the cornerstone of the Southern Confederacy was the notion that, quote, as a race, the African is inferior to the white man. Subordination is his normal condition. He is not his equal by nature and cannot be made so by human laws and human institutions, end quote. Theirs was a deeply conservative ideology. In other words, slavery exists now. Why change it? Don't meddle with the way things are. They are that way for a reason. 
In an era of frighteningly rapid advancements in technology and corresponding societal changes, they became suspicious and even hostile to change. There was no need to tinker with the status quo in their eyes because, simply put, slavery was enormously profitable. Not only the lucrative cotton crop, which enslaved African Americans harvested for free, but slaves themselves were regarded as a form of capital. By 1860, there were four million slaves in the United States, worth three and a half billion dollars. That's an astounding 75 billion today. At the time, that sum was worth more than the entire industrial output of the nation put together. This is what the African-American poet and author Francis Ellen Watkin Harper eloquently described in 1857 as, quote, a fearful alchemy by which blood may be transformed into gold, end quote. People made their careers buying and selling human beings at open markets. Here in Florence, such sales took place at the door of the courthouse. Many of the victims of this fearful alchemy were children. For enslaved children living in the Upper South and Seaboard between 1820 and 1860, they had about a 30% chance of being sold away from their parents before the age of 10. President James K. Polk of Columbia, Tennessee, about an hour north of here, even bought and sold human beings from the Oval Office of the White House. Two-thirds of the first ten presidents and two-thirds of Supreme Court justices, not to mention members of Congress, were slaveholders. It is worth noting as well that only about one-third of white Southern households at any point were slaveholders. Yet the culture of slaveholding pervaded every aspect of Southern society. In the Florence Gazette, alongside advertisements for iron stoves, patent cure-all medicines, and railroad fares, one saw advertisements where slaves were offered for sale or lease, glibly listing the names and ages of the souls in question. In understanding why the Southern elite will rebel against the government of the United States, one must understand the fact that slavery was regarded as a perfectly legitimate and astoundingly profitable form of property, a right which very soon which be, would be upheld by the Supreme Court and spark outrage in the North. We are going to take a short break. Please stay with us. Things began to boil over with the fallout from the Mexican-American War. The events of the war need not detain us here. Suffice to say, the expansionist, and especially Southern expansionist, impulse to conquer the West led mostly white Southerners first to settle Texas, then a territory of Mexico, then to secede from Mexico, briefly establishing an independent republic, which was then annexed by the United States. A dispute over the southern boundary of that annexed Texas erupted in war between the U.S. and Mexico in 1846. The U.S. forces occupied Mexico City in 1847 and dictated terms of a surrender, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, in which the U.S. gained 
an enormous swath of territory, compromising all of California, Utah, and Nevada, and much of New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, and West Texas, even parts of Wyoming. The addition of so much new territory to be organized heated up the already contentious and sectionally divided question of slavery. Northerners, for a number of reasons, as before stated, opposed the expansion of slavery into the West. While they conceded that they had no right to remove slavery from Alabama, for example, where it already existed, it was quite another matter to make them complicitous in the creation of a new slave territory in the West. Southerners, on the other hand, felt an urgent necessity to expand their system, partly out of a deep-seated westward expansionist impulse that I've described, but also growing opposition to the expansion of slavery in the North led Southern leaders to feel, perhaps not without reason, that the South was being enclosed. There is fear about what is called a shrinking South. This was a real problem because, for one thing, if there were no new markets for slavery to expand into, and it was cordoned off into the South exclusively, the expanding slave population would mean that slaves would depreciate in value, as per simple supply and demand economics. Also, if the new territories were organized with slavery expressly illegal, the balance of free to slave states in the Senate would be lost, and southern political influence would erode even further. Furthermore, there was a certain question of honor. The issue of slavery in the territories became a kind of moral bellwether to certain northern politicians. According to Professor Blight, quote, Northerners came to believe that the legal status of slavery in the West stood as a measure of its moral standing everywhere. End quote. This was insulting to Southerners. Essentially, if slavery were immoral enough to be prohibited in the territories, it was also immoral where it already existed. The issue may have taken its time to work everything out were it not for the fact that in 1848, gold was discovered in California, and with stunning rapidity, following a flood of migration, California was ready for statehood. California, a vast area compared to the old states of the East, straddled the old Missouri Compromise line, and the admission of California, whether slave or free, would upset the balance or parity of free-to-slave states in the Senate. What John C. Calhoun called the destruction of the equilibrium between the two sections. The stakes were high and tempers flared. There were already talks of disunion from Southerners. <clears throat> to save the Union from disintegration, Senators Henry Clay of Kentucky and Daniel Webster of Massachusetts drafted what is known as the Compromise of 1850. In short, California would be admitted as a free state, and the slave trade would be outlawed in Washington, D.C., and in exchange, there would be a much stronger fugitive slave law. The boundary of Texas would shift to allow the creation of more potential slave states, and a principle of popular sovereignty would determine the status of slavery in any territory of the Mexican Cession. While it seemed a crisis was averted for the moment, events only continued to escalate. By 1854, 
the Kansas and Nebraska Territory, land left over from the old Louisiana Purchase, was getting ready for statehood, and the question of slavery again came to a head. The question now before lawmakers was this. What would be the precedent by which the territory would be organized with regard to slavery? Did the Compromise of 1850 supersede the Missouri Compromise? The principle of popular sovereignty avowed by the former was at odds with the north-south dividing line of the latter. In short, if the people who settle a territory vote to allow slavery, it should be allowed. Or if they vote to forbid it, it should be forbidden. Southerners simply would not accept an outright ban on slavery in the frontier of the American West. The result was the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, authored by Democrat Stephen Douglas of Illinois. The Kansas-Nebraska Act explicitly repealed the Missouri Compromise and its north-south dividing line, which for 34 years had been seen as a kind of, quote, sacred bargain between the two factions. Now, any territory would have a referendum at some stage of the statehood process where the residents of the territory would vote whether or not to allow slavery in the state, which threw open the possibility of the expansion of slavery into all of the western frontier. This was met with outrage in the north. Town hall meetings were held in cities and towns across the north, and virtually overnight, the Republican Party was born with opposition to the Kansas-Nebraska Act and categorical rejection of future slavery in the West as their founding creed. The Act all at once shattered Northerners' fundamental assumptions about the future of the American West, the future for their children, and what was for them the American dream. They feared what was overtly called the slave power conspiracy, whereby influential oligarchical slaveholders were wielding disproportionate control over American government at the highest levels at the expense of everyday people, small farmers, craftspeople, and immigrants, for whom cheap land out west was the seed of opportunity and economic mobility. And if slavery could expand into Kansas, where once it was forbidden by congressional legislation, what was to stop it from expanding to all the states of the North as well? The American political landscape was in a state of flux, the likes of which we can scarcely imagine today. The old Whig Party ceased to exist. Many of their scattered ranks joined the new Republican. It was a strange bedfellow coalition of abolitionists, free soilers, and some nativists who were more fearful of the slave power conspiracy than they were of the tide of more than one and a half million Irish Catholics who had migrated to the U.S. since 1845 during the Great Potato Famine. In the congressional elections in the fall of 1854, Northern Democrats paid dearly for their support of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. When they voted on the act, there were 91 Northern Democrats in Congress. After the election, there were only 25. And Republicans, who had only existed as a party for less than six months, sent 100 representatives to Congress. The American Party, or nativists, themselves sent 40 members to Congress in 1854. These developments were quite alarming 
and threatening in the South because perhaps the slaveholders' greatest fear was a northern political party that was expressly anti-slavery because by this time the northern electorate outnumbered that of the South by two to one. Kansas became a contest now between the free soilers of the North and the slaveholders of the South to see who could get the most settlers from their side to vote in the crucial upcoming referendum. There were immigrant aid societies established in the North to give all kinds of assistance to help immigrant settlers reach Kansas. Settlers flocked across the border from Missouri, a slave state. Some of them, so-called border ruffians, stayed only long enough to vote in the referendum. The process of statehood was fraught with corruption. As per the territorial census taken in the spring of 1855, there were just under 3,000 eligible voters living in Kansas. When the time came to adopt a constitution later that year, more than 6,000 people voted. The state quickly adopted a pro-slavery constitution and legislature, which was denounced as fraudulent by free soilers who organized their own government. By January of 1856, Kansas had two rival territorial governments, one pro and one anti-slavery. Violence broke out between small armed groups of both sides in a miniature dress rehearsal of the coming civil war known as Bleeding Kansas. Events only continued to accelerate and intensify. In the spring of 1856, Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner delivered a lengthy and scathing rebuke to the Senate of what he dubbed the crime against Kansas, in which he personally chided his colleagues of the South and denounced slavery as an evil antithetical to American democracy. The speech was published, received with acclaim in the North and outrage in the South, to many Southerners, their honor was now at stake and sullied by these radical Yankee abolitionists. One Southern congressman, Preston Brooks of South Carolina, was so personally affronted by Sumner's invective that he confronted Sumner at his desk in the chamber of the Senate and fiercely beat him within an inch of his life with a walking stick. Northerners called for his arrest, while Southerners sent him canes in the mail, inscribed with pithy phrases like, hit him again. Members of Congress began to arrive in the Capitol building armed with pistols and daggers. 1856 was also a presidential election year. The contest was a three-way race between the brand new Republicans, who, in a startling result, all but won, the American Party, or nativists, also called the Know-Nothings, and the Democrats, whose candidate James Buchanan of Pennsylvania had been ambassador to Britain during the vote on the Kansas-Nebraska Act and, as a result, had never even voted on it and thus had no position to defend. Buchanan was known as a so-called doe-face, which meant a northerner with southern sympathies. Buchanan won every slave state, except Maryland, in addition to New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Indiana, Illinois, and California. The Republican candidate, John C. Fremont, decisively carried the rest of the free states and New England. The American Party's Millard Fillmore, former president, received a scattering of 850,000 votes. Buchanan had 1.8 million votes. Fremont received 1.3 million. Had the nativists not been in the election and two-thirds of their votes gone to Fremont, he would have won. The Free Soilers called it a victory within a defeat. 
Less than three years old as a party, the Republicans had almost won the presidency. Their platform was simple. Keep Kansas a free state and stop the expansion of slavery in the West. They pledged to, quote, destroy slavery wherever federal jurisdiction reigned, end quote. Back in Kansas, in the fall of the next year, 1857, free soilers denouncing ongoing corruption in the territorial government boycotted an election to choose delegates to a state constitutional convention. This convention produced a staunchly pro-slavery constitution known as the Lecompton Constitution, which enshrined the right to slave ownership and even banned free African Americans from residency in the state. Terrible violence continued, and the territorial governor appointed by Buchanan fled to Washington, D.C., where he urged the president not to support the Lecompton Constitution, as it was called. Buchanan, however, took the Constitution before Congress for ratification, citing popular sovereignty with the admission of Kansas as a slave state. Here, the Democratic Party began to fracture. Stephen Douglas himself, author of the bill and champion of popular sovereignty, told the president that he could not support the Lecompton Constitution because it was simply fraudulent. Congress did not accept the Lecompton Constitution. 1857 was a volatile year. In the spring, the Supreme Court handed down the notorious Dred Scott decision. Dred Scott had been born a slave in Virginia in 1795. He actually resided here in Florence, Alabama between 1822 and 1830, while being held in bondage by a man named Peter Blow, who owned and operated an inn here, after first living in Huntsville when they moved from Virginia in 1818. By 1830, he had been taken to St. Louis and was thereafter acquired by a surgeon named Emerson. With Dr. Emerson, he had traveled around the North, mostly Minnesota. He at one point, while living in the North, tried to purchase his own freedom, which was denied. He was eventually taken back to Missouri. People tried to help him obtain his freedom by suing in court. When the matter was heard in court in 1850, he was granted his freedom. But then the state of Missouri appealed, and the ruling was overturned. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court, where it was put on their docket in 1854. News broke about his case three days after the inauguration of President Buchanan, and according to Dr. Plight, it electrified the national political culture. There were three aspects of this case that made it highly contentious. The first was a matter of jurisdiction. Did Dred Scott, as a black man, have the right to sue for anything? Could a non-citizen, i.e. a black man, sue in federal court? Second, did Scott's residence on free soil entitle him to freedom? If a slave were taken to a free state, did the law of the master's state hold ultimate jurisdiction? And finally, did Congress have the right to determine the status of slavery in the Western territories? Five of the nine justices had been or were currently slaveholders, and three were northern-born. The court decided six to three, no, Scott did not have the right to sue in federal court.
His residency on free soil did not grant him freedom. Missouri's law held precedence. And perhaps the biggest bombshell to come out of the decision, the court ruled that Congress had no right whatsoever to exclude slavery from any territory because it would be a violation of the Fifth Amendment. The old Missouri Compromise, therefore, had never even been constitutional. Any attempt to prevent slavery's expansion would be unconstitutional. Chief Justice Taney infamously issued his opinion that, quote, Negroes have for more than a century been regarded as beings of an inferior order, so far inferior that they have no rights which the white man is bound to respect, end quote. The decision galvanized the Republican cause, who were united in their opposition against it. And it destroyed the last remaining hope for compromise on the issue. Moderate politicians were ruined, and there was no longer any middle ground to be found. The following year, Abraham Lincoln, in his famous debates with Stephen Douglas, gave his well-known house-divided speech, in which he laid out the Republicans' opposition both to the Dred Scott ruling and the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Republicans believed that the Dred Scott decision, in essence, opened up all states to the possibility of slave labor. Also at this time, in 1857, there was a severe economic depression, the Panic of 57, partly from the fallout of a bursting stock bubble to, due to what had been a booming railroad industry, which had fed on the ever-increasing migration westward. The Supreme Court's decision regarding Dred Scott led to a slight devaluation in land prices and railroad securities in Kansas because the political future of the Western territories was now quite uncertain. The railroads had also created an economy more nationally interconnected than ever before. The downturn of the value of railroad securities financed by big banks caused shockwaves throughout the economy, much like the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis. Wages across the North fell up to 50% in six months. 100,000 were out of work in New York City. The price of wheat plummeted. Westward expansion essentially halted. Both sides, North and South, blamed each other. The South, with its fewer railroads and more insular regional economy, did not fare as poorly as the North and Southerners came to believe that the North needed the South for stability, and that Northerners, as a result, would be more sympathetic to Southern demands regarding slavery. Then, in 1859, came one of the most famous events in the long progression to the war, John Brown's famous ill-fated raid in Harpers Ferry, Virginia, now West Virginia. John Brown was as radical as abolitionists came. I could say a lot about him, more than is relevant here. Suffice to say, he was deeply religious and zealously anti-slavery. Back in Kansas in 1856, he and his sons had killed a group of pro-slavery settlers in Kansas by hacking them to death with broadswords. He came back east with the goal of recruiting a band of followers to go south, kill slaveholders, and free their slaves, whom he then hoped would join him on a kind of crusade through the state of Virginia to the state capital, where they could then overthrow the state government and replace it with a society free of slavery, 
with he himself as governor. He even drafted a new constitution for the state of Virginia. On the 16th of October, 1859, John Brown led his small band into Harper's Ferry at the confluence of the Shenandoah and Potomac Rivers, where he led an assault on the federal arsenal located there. The first person killed was actually a free black train conductor. The group held the arsenal for 48 hours, while the military, led by future Confederate commanders Robert E. Lee and Jeb Stuart, mounted a counteroffensive. In the end, all but two of Brown's accomplices were killed in the standoff. Brown was captured and put on trial for treason, inciting a slave rebellion, and murder. He was found guilty on the 31st of October, 1859, and sentenced to death. The news of the raid and of his trial was a sensation throughout the country, north and south. After his conviction, as he sat in prison awaiting execution, he received crowds of visitors and wrote hundreds of public and private letters championing the abolitionist cause. He was almost delighted by the spotlight now cast on him. To his wife, he wrote, quote, I feel determined to make the utmost possible out of my defeat. End quote. The impact of his failed insurrection was far-reaching and electrified the already bitterly divided country. He was executed by hanging on the 2nd of December, 1859. In the South, the rage sparked hysteria. It was perhaps the South's oldest and worst fear that a northern white man would come south, incite a rebellion, and forcibly free the slaves. Northerners were targeted across the South. In the North, Brown was hailed as a martyr to the anti-slavery cause. Donations were gathered for his family, and crowds gathered in Boston on the day of his execution, offering prayer vigils and awaiting the news by telegraph of the rendition of his sentence. The most important thing about John Brown and his raid, according to David Blight, was what people made of it. He captured the imagination of the country, whether you loved him or hated him. He was the subject of commemorative songs, poetry, and private reflection. Frederick Douglass famously spoke of him, quote, I could only live for the slave, but John Brown could die for the slave, end quote. Douglas himself narrowly escaped to Canada after being sought in connection with Brown's plot due to his personal connections with him. Brown had stayed in Douglas's house in upstate New York while recruiting for his failed insurrection. The nation, deeply polarized, began the year 1860, a presidential election year and a fateful one at that, supercharged with the memory of Brown, whether you adored him or cursed him. It was clear that legislation had failed to solve the problem of slavery, and moderate voices were no longer heard. Before the year was over, the Democrats, the last remaining truly national party, would themselves split in two. A new party would be created to try and find some middle ground to avert calamity. And the Republicans, despised in the South, would choose a moderate one-term senator from Illinois as their candidate, named Abraham Lincoln, and light the match which would ignite the power, powder keg of secession. Join me in the next episode, where we will learn a bit more about the election of 1860 and its impact across the South. 
we will visit the Alabama Secession Convention to hear what was said as the state debated whether to leave the Union. And we will examine the demographic and socio-political makeup of the Shoals and how the area reacted to the secession crisis. Thank you so much for listening.